0: How many of you believe that Jesus is coming soon? Amen. But think for a minute. Were your parents at a camp meeting maybe 1950, 1960, and were they asked the same question back then? How did they respond then? Yes. How about your grandparents, some of you who are a longtime part of the Seventh day Adventist Church back in the year 1910 or 1920? Were they asked the same question? And did they get the same answer? How about when Jones and Wagoner were preaching in 1988, 89, 90, 91? What do you think the answer would have been then? Amen. Or how about October 21, 1844? And the question would be asked Is Jesus coming soon? Would they have said yes? Or would they have jumped up and shouted? Do you see we've got a problem? We've been asking that question too many times, giving the same answer to it. Has something gone tragically wrong? Do we really have a clear answer to that question? Could our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren be asking the same question 20, 50 years from now? Yeah. <laughs> Would I shock too many people? if I said that we have no guarantee that Jesus is coming soon. I do not believe that I can say unequivocally that Jesus is coming within the next 5, 10, or even 20 years. Now, before you all depart the church, (laughs) let me tell you what I do believe. Would you take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 7? And we will read the first three verses. Revelation chapter 7. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. If you want to know where we are exactly in the Bible, we happen to be living in Revelation 7, verse 1. That is our life experience right now. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. There was a very dramatic vision that Ellen White saw. She recorded it in Early Writings, page 38, Uh, regarding these four angels of Revelation chapter 7. The vision focused on a moment when, for whatever reason, the angels felt that their commission was finished and they were letting the winds go. Now, remember, this was early writings, which is in the very early part of our church's history, 1850s and 60s. She says, their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow. The merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed, and he raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he had spilled his blood for them. Jesus gazed in pity on the remnant, then raised his hands and with a voice of deep pity cried, My blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. I saw an exceeding bright light come from God, who sat upon the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and down in his hand and crying with a loud voice, Hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads." Back. 150 years ago all this was transpiring as Ellen White saw it in vision and God said wait wait my people are not ready for that dramatic sealing time that has to come. The four angels have been holding the winds for a long time now 150 years past this time that Ellen White saw that it was ready to be loosed they have been specifically ordered to keep holding the winds until God finds that special people that he will seal with his name in their foreheads. That tells us two things, because we're still here. First, the sealing work has not been finished. Second, and this is the important part, the sealing, that God, Christ coming to this earth and the end of this earth's history will wait until that sealing work is done. When he finds that people that are sealable, then the winds will be loosed and Jesus will come. Now, having said that we have no guarantees that Jesus is coming soon, may I hasten to add my conviction that I believe that the coming of of Christ could be very, very soon. You see, we're talking about guarantees, which we don't have, and possibilities, which we do have. It seems that there are certain points in Adventist history when Jesus moves events in the world to climax points and then he waits to see if his people are ready to follow him ready to move with him. One of those climax points happened within 10 years after 1844. If the Millerite movement would have held together instead of totally self-destructing after the disappointment. If the Millerite movement of thousands and thousands of dedicated, sincere believers would have survived the great disappointment. Everything could have been finished within 10 years after 1844. And then things went into a plateau of over 40 years, significant time period. And again, in the 1890s, God was moving events in the world, in our United States, in our government, and in our church toward climax point. And once again... The message came to God's people, are you ready to be sealed and to be translated without seeing death? And once again, God said, hold, my people are not ready. The seal cannot be placed. And now we have gone into a holding period of over 100 years, not 40 anymore, but over 100 years and it is my conviction that God is moving events in this world once again into climax point this world is now coming back to that situation in which it was a hundred years ago in the world in the church and in our United States government ready for final action to take place and once again God is asking the same question are you ready to follow me this time are you ready to move with me as I move into the final events of Earth's history. Catch the vision of eternity and this time finish it all completely. So the question is very simple. Will they do it this time? But that's the wrong question because it's we. Will we be that people this time? That's all that matters. God will win the great controversy. Jesus will come. It's only a question of which generation make it possible for that to happen. And it wasn't my father's and it wasn't my grandfather's who preached the soon coming of Jesus Christ as a Seventh-day Adventist minister and my great-grandfather who was a delegate to the 1888 conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It wasn't to any of those people who wanted Jesus to come as much as we do. And here we are today if we today decide that we're going to be serious about our chosen name seventh day Adventist then this thing could be over in a very short time but if we keep on sleeping along and congratulating ourselves about our beautiful churches and our fine organs and the surging number of baptisms in other parts of the world than North America then we'll be here for a long time congratulating ourselves as to how well we're doing in the seventh day Adventist church and we'll go to our graves in disappointment, every one of us, no matter how young you might be. Now you may be wondering if my reading of the spirit of prophecy has been rather meager. And I haven't seen that statement that the church will go through, although it seems to fl- to fall. I have read that statement and I have treasured that statement and held on to that statement because I believe in it with all my heart. This church will go through and it will be God's final church. But beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, I have also read some other statements in the spirit of prophecy that either we don't like to read or that are not easily accessible for some reason or another. And I doubt you've heard any of these statements from the same author that said that the church will go through. Uh, But before I read those statements... I want to take you back to the Old Testament because, you see, we have the same problem exactly as the Israelites had. They wanted to have the Messiah come. They wanted to have uh, peace and, and happiness for all eternity just like we do. Turn to the book of Jeremiah with me, chapter 31. Jeremiah, chapter 31. When Jesus Christ gave some of his very disturbing, and they were disturbing messages to the people of Israel about the temple being destroyed, about not one stone being left upon another. The Jews had some statements to fire back at him. They had some very treasured statements that they held on to with all their heart. Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 35. Listen carefully. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. So God is placing his name behind these stars and suns and in the sky. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Have those ordinances disappeared from the sky? Moon, stars, sun. And then Israel is promised that it will be a nation, not just a spiritual people like we believe we are. Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Well, that hasn't happened either. And God has said, if that can be done, which it can't, I will cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done. Promises. Promises made by God. Ellen White comments on this passage. These words the Jews applied to themselves. Why not? And because God had shown them so great favor and mercy, they flattered themselves that... Notwithstanding their sins and iniquity, He would still retain them as His favored people and shower especial blessings upon them. This has been the danger of the people of God in all ages, and especially is this the danger of those living near the close of time. If they, now that's we, Shut their eyes, as did the Jews, to their own corruption and choose their own ways. The Lord will give them up to blindness of mind and hardness of heart that they cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. There's Ellen White's warning. That text just doesn't apply to the Jews, but to us. But doesn't the promise sound absolute? There's no if, and, or but in there. The, the promise sounds absolute. Weren't the Jews justified in believing that the Jews would stand forever as God's chosen people based on this passage? And are we not likewise justified in believing that our ship will go through when we read that though it appears to fall, it will not fall? Or have they and we both forgotten another principle in the Bible that is not so comfortable? It's in the same book, Jeremiah chapter 18. Not far away. It shouldn't have been a problem for the Jews to understand this. But, you know, we ignore the, the, the passages that are uncomfortable. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. There it is. Any promise God ever makes to an individual or to a people concerning their relationship to him and their future is always conditional upon the people's response or the nation's response, or the church's response. Always. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy. This should not have been a problem. This should not have been a mystery for the Jews. And it shouldn't be for us either. In Deuteronomy, Moses' last message to his chosen people, the people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee, and overtake thee, now the next word, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Down to verse 9. The Lord shall establish thee in holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. And then verse 13. And the Lord shall make thee the head, and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And then it changes in verse 15. But it shall come to pass... If thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee, and then the curses follow. Look at one of them, verse 20. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken thee very plain very direct impossible to misunderstand look at verse 45 moreover all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed because thou hearkenedest not unto the voice of the lord thy god to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee very plain very clear the jews chose to ignore those statements and just take the nice ones Although we will stand forever, we are the children of Abraham. We have the promises. The prophets have prophesied. Ellen White says very succinctly in Evangelism 695, it should be remembered that the promises and the threatenings of God are alike conditional. There's the principle. Promises and threatenings. Always conditional upon response. And do you know we are in just as much danger of forgetting that principle today as the Jews were in the time of Jeremiah and in the time of Christ. This message this morning is not an easy one to give. We're going into a dark tunnel. It's going to look like there's no way out. But you know tunnels are not caves. Have you noticed that? There is light at the end of every tunnel. First of all, though, may I share with you some of those, quote, other inspired statements that are not read very often, not studied very often in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'll give you the references. You can check them for yourself. Testimonies, volume 5, 217. I am filled with sadness when I think of our condition as a people. Our own course of continual backsliding has separated us from God, and yet the general opinion is that the church is flourishing and that peace and spiritual prosperity are in all her borders. The church has turned back from following christ her leader and is steadily retreating toward egypt testimonies to ministers 397 the whole body is sick because of mismanagement and miscalculation review and Herald, july 24 1888 some power has cut the cable and we are drifting away to sea without chart or compass Testimonies, volume 5, 75 and 76. You are following the same path as did ancient Israel. Your neglect to follow the light will place you in a more unfavorable position than the Jews upon whom Christ pronounced a woe. Testimonies, volume 8, 250. Unless the church, which is now being leavened with her own backsliding, shall repent and be converted, she will eat of the fruit of her own doing until she shall abhor herself. There is a statement also I found in Review and Herald, uh, February 4, 1890. The church to whom God has entrusted the treasures of truth needs to be converted. The church needs to be converted. Testimonies Volume 5, we're not done. 71. It pains me to say, my brethren, that your sinful neglect to walk in the light has enshrouded you in darkness. You may now be honest in not recognizing and obeying the light. The doubt you have entertained, your neglect to heed the requirements of God, have blinded your perceptions, so that darkness is now to you light, and light is darkness. We are in that time now. In a letter to Butler and Haskell on December 8, 1886, Oh, what privileges are granted to us as a people. And if God spared not his people that he loved, because they refused to walk in the light, How can he spare the people whom he has blessed with the light of heaven in having opened to them the most exalted truth ever entrusted to mortal men to give to the world? Internal corruption will bring the denunciations of God upon this people as it did upon Jerusalem. My brethren, we know not what is before us. God will work with us and for us if. The sins which brought his wrath upon the old world, upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and upon ancient Jerusalem do not become our crime. In Review review and Herald, Volume 2, page 308, what would the Savior do if he should come to us now as he did to the Jews? He would have to do a similar work. Testimonies, Volume 8, 67 and 68, Jerusalem is a representation of what the church will be. If it refuses to receive and walk in the light that God has given, these are no idle tales but truth. Testimonies, Volume 1, 608 and 609. If we imitate Israel's example of transgression and depart from God, we shall fall as surely as did they. And Testimonies, Volume 8, 127. Let a church become proud and boastful, not depending on God, not exalting His power, and that church will surely be left by the Lord to be brought down to the ground. Let a people glory in wealth, intellect, knowledge, or in anything but Christ, and they will soon be brought to confusion." Testimonies, Volume 8, 247. In the balances of the sanctuary, the Seventh-day Adventist church is to be weighed. She will be judged by the privileges and advantages she has had. If her spiritual experience does not correspond to the advantages that Christ at infinite cost has bestowed upon her, if the blessings have not qualified her to do the work entrusted on her, on her will be pronounced the sentence, found wanting. And one more. Manuscript releases, volume 14, 102. When a church proves unfaithful to the word of the Lord, whatever their position may be, however high and sacred their calling, the Lord can no longer work with them. Others are then chosen to bear important responsibilities. If these do not purify their lives from every wrong action, if they do not establish pure and holy principles in all their borders, then the Lord will grievously afflict and humble them, and unless they repent, will remove them from their place and make them a reproach. Well, those are some of the statements. There are more. Those are some of the statements that we're not too excited about hearing. They don't fit with what we really want and hope. Do you see now why I made the strong statement that I did at the beginning of this message? That we have no guarantees. The guarantees aren't there any more than they were to the Jews of Christ's time. Yes, I believe that the ship will go through, but brothers and sisters, the ship is you and me, not some entity outside of us that we can hold on to and carry, that will carry us through. If the ship goes through, it's because we allow that to happen, and we are the ship. The ship of Adventism will go through if you and I will dedicate our lives to be that generation, to be the ones which will reverse the tide and bring us back from Egypt into the promised land. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting at all that we can best do God's will by separating from this church because it's so bad and because the prophecies have been there that it might be rejected. In fact, I'm afraid that if God's faithful people would separate from this body, then it would go down. Because the faithful ones would not be there to keep moving it ahead. So we must remain and we must be part. All I'm concerned about is that we do not become careless and say the Lord is with us. We are his people. We have the prophet. We have the messages. We have present truth and we are going through. And then we'll miss this marvelous opportunity that we have to be that final generation and be the ones to go through. Just what I'm saying is let's not be too complacent. Let's not sit in our Adventism and say, we've got it all put together. That's not enough. Hanging on is not good enough today. Hanging on. Our only hope is study and prayer like we've never studied and prayed before. Now, if what I am been saying is at all true, what is the answer? What is the light at the end of the tunnel? What is the solution? What is the way out of this dilemma? How can we be sure we will not make the mistakes that the Jews is and miss out? On this marvelous opportunity that we have. How can we help Jesus end this planet's suffering and go home? We've forgotten sometimes our past history. And if we forget our past, we will make the same mistakes all over again. We have had a m- dramatic demonstration of God's plan for His people and human beings' ability to thwart God's plans. We've had a dramatic demonstration of that in our Adventist history. And may I suggest that if we have the slightest chance to be this final remnant today, then we'd better find out what went wrong before so we don't go over that same ground and do it all over again. And of course, I am talking about the period between 1888 and 1900, the last real chance we had to go home in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm going to urge you, if you haven't made much of a study of that period of our history, to make that a top priority, to find out and no, and not make the same mistakes over again in the spirit of prophecy. We're told this about that message testimonies to ministers. Ninety one, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders, Wagoner and Jones, a most precious message. This message understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit will lighten the earth with its glory. Where have we seen that in the Bible? That's the third angel's message and the fourth angel's message. Lightening the earth with its glory. So this message was the loud cry message. This was the message to go to the world. uh, Selected messages, volume 1, 234, 235. What happened? Why didn't it go to the world? Why didn't we have a latter rain? By exciting that opposition... Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The light that is to lighten the whole earth with his glory was resisted and by the action of our brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. It's not the fault of those out there. It's the fault of those who were given the message by quibbling and jealousy and jealousy and open opposition, human beings, members of the remnant church, succeeded in delaying the coming of Christ for a hundred years. That's the reality. God has given an awful lot of decision-making power to his human beings. Old Testament, New Testament, and our time. God has given Brother Jones and Brother Wagner a message for the people. When you reject the message borne by these men, you reject Christ, the giver of the message. We've had a lot of criticism of Jones and Waggoner's messages in recent years. Books have been written showing that their message was flawed, that it was a message which would lead into disaster. Let's read that again. When you reject the message borne by these men, you reject Christ, the giver of the message. As she listened to these messages, she would say, every fiber of my heart said, amen. During the presentations in Minneapolis, she sat on the front row And she was heard to say over and over, Amen, there is much light here. She would even say one time that Dr. Wagoner was able to present righteousness by faith in a way that she herself could not. Now in recent years, there has been a major attempt to say that while some of our leading brethren rejected the message back then and um, made it tough, Uh, most of them repented and they came into line and we have been believing in the message of righteousness by faith ever since and teaching it. And I'm going to suggest to you don't believe that for even one minute. Why? Because number one, we're still sitting here. If we had accepted that message, God would have come in that generation. It would have been all over. Second, the historical evidence, if you want to search the historical evidence and look at it carefully, shows that there was a continued rejection of that message for that whole 10-year period. A few came into line, but the rejection and the opposition and the quibbling remained. And I'm going to go a step farther. I don't believe we have understood, heard, or lived the 1888 message from that time until today, with few exceptions. It's been a lost message. In 1926, Elder A.G. Daniels, who was a former General Conference president at that time, wrote this, The message has never been received nor proclaimed nor given free course as it should have been in order to convey to the church the measureless blessings that were wrapped within it. Now that's writing in 1926. And he says the message has never been received nor proclaimed. Um, In the 1888 materials by Ellen White, volume 1, 356 and 357, as reformers, they, meaning our Adventist leaders, had come out of the denominational churches, but they now act a part similar to that which the churches acted. In other words, they came out of churches because of principle, and now they were resisting the truth just as the other churches had resisted the truth, the leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And then this plaintive statement that Ellen White only made once in her life. We hoped that there would not be the necessity for another coming out. She only said that once. But the fear was there for Ellen White that we were doing the same thing all over again. While we will endeavor, she said, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace, we will not with pen or voice cease to protest against bigotry. And that's what was going on in those years. Prejudice against an unpopular message. W.C. White, her son, well, it's before that. In 1898, Ellen White was still speaking of stubborn defiance and disunion. In 1902, she said, I have been instructed that the terrible experience at the Minneapolis Conference is one of the saddest chapters in the history of the believers in present truth. W.C. White, her son, wrote this. The most serious feature of the disaffection... Was the fact that because Sister White urged the importance of the message of righteousness by faith. And because thereby she seemed to be upholding these brethren. That's Wagoner and Jones. Contrary to their judgment. The leaders of the church. It grew into a spirit of rejection of the testimonies of Sister White. Can you guess why we're having so much problem today with the messages of Ellen White. That seed was planted back then. Oh Ellen White doesn't understand. She's getting old. She's out of touch. Uh, she's got some biases toward these men, etc., etc., and on it went. Maybe we're just reaping the fruit today of those seeds planted a hundred years ago. And perhaps the heart of the whole problem is found in these comments by Ellen White in 1901. Enough has been said over and over and over again, but it does not make any difference. They go right on just the same, professedly accepting it, but they do not make any change. Are we there today? You see, I think this might uh, be the problem today as our historians look back at that time, uh, assuming that lip service meant heart obedience. And perhaps we have the same problem today in our experience. Inspiration tells us that the leaders of the 1901 General Conference closed and bolted the door against the Spirit's entrance. The doors were barred against the heavenly current that would have swept away all evil. How can you do business as a church when the Holy Spirit is outside? The result of the last general conference has been the greatest, the most terrible sorrow of my life. No change was made. And the interesting point, she's talking about in the 1901 general conference in which major organizational changes were made, but no heart change apparently was made. All right, we're going to finish up. Now, if it is really true that God was going to finish up his work through the 1888 message. And if it's really true that we've never heard that message clearly with few exceptions in in, in our day, what is the message that would have produced the latter rain and the loud cry in those years and will produce it today if we let it? What is that message? One sentence describes the message in summary. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the heart and soul of the 1888 message. Christ in you, not Christ for you, not Christ substituting, Christ living in you, the hope of glory, day by day, moment by moment, trusting him. That is the message of 1888. It was focused on preparing God's people for translation, not death, and thus it had much to say about how to be perfect in Christ and thus prepare for translation. The message was not, mark this carefully, not about my personal assurance of salvation. They didn't talk about that very much at all. But they talked about vindicating and glorifying God's name. That was the heart of their message. Whether I'm saved or not was not the focus of that message. And so I'm going to share just a few excerpts from those messages as we finish up today. And you think about whether you've heard too much of this in recent years. Christ took upon himself the flesh, not of a sinless being, but of sinful man. That is, that the flesh which he assumed had all the weaknesses and sinful tendencies to which fallen human nature is subject. In all of our Christian experience, we have left little loopholes along here and there for sin. We have never dared to come to that place where we should believe that the Christian life should be a sinless life. We have not dared to believe it or preach it. But in that case, we cannot preach the law of God fully. Why not? Because we do not understand the power of justification by faith. They're not talking even about sanctification. They're talking about justification. And by the way, this is the difference between justification as taught in the evangelical Christian world and throughout much of Adventism and justification as taught in the 1888 message. Only in that message do we hear about power to keep from sinning. And that victory is always linked to the fallen nature of Jesus Christ our Savior. Christ is to be in us just as God was in him. And his character is to be in us just as God was in him. It is the cooperation of the divine and the human, the mystery of God in you and me. That is the third angel's message. That is the third angel's message. Not prophecies of what the Pope is doing or what Washington is doing, but the mystery of Christ living in us. In Jesus Christ, as he was in sinful flesh, God has demonstrated before the universe that he can so take possession of sinful flesh as to manifest his own presence his power and his glory instead of sin manifesting itself then God will so take us and so use us that our sinful selves shall not appear to influence or affect anybody but God will manifest his righteous self His glory before men in spite of all ourselves and our sinfulness. And that is the mystery of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God manifest in sinful flesh. Now the flesh of Jesus Christ was our flesh. And in it was all that is in our flesh. All the tendencies to sin that are in our flesh were in His flesh. Drawing upon Him to get Him to consent to sin. Perfection. Perfection of character is the Christian goal. Perfection attained in human flesh in this world. Christ attained it in human flesh in this world and thus made and consecrated a way by which in him every believer can attain it. And just one more. But before probation ends, there will be a people so complete in him that in spite of their sinful flesh, they will live sinless lives. They will live sinless lives in mortal flesh because He who has demonstrated that He has all power over all flesh lives in them, lives a sinless life in sinful flesh. Do you see why I said this is kind of a rare message? You just don't hear that every day around our parts these days. Instead, we're very divided on whether Christ even took our nature or not. And we're counseling people not to study it because it's so divisive. We're very sure, or pretty sure, that perfection and sinless living is some fanatical extreme that will lead to some kind of rigid rigid Phariseeism. And so we're saying, don't go down that road. Look what happened. Back to Jones and Wagner. Satan has done a masterful job in closing our minds and prejudicing us against the only message that will get us ready for the seal of God and allow God to do his final work. But brothers and sisters, Satan hasn't done his job well enough. In spite of his best efforts to destroy this message, to bury it, it's alive. It's growing. It is moving on the hearts of God's people. And, us, and, th- and some are responding to it. And I want to leave you with my final conviction. I believe with all my heart that God will not let, that this op- God's people will not let this opportunity pass them by again. I see an awakening among church members, and I don't think Satan will be able to put them all to sleep again. I am particularly excited about the awakening in the younger generation of Adventism from 18 to, say, 40 or so. I am very excited about that, but mark one thing: the awakening is still among a minority of God's people. It is not the major- majority, and never will be. It is among a minority of God's people. The majority continue to sleep on in a death sleep, assuming as long that as long as they keep coming to church, everything will be all right and they'll go through somehow. What a tragic awakening it will be when too late, most Seventh Day Adventists will realize they have the mark of the beast. If you want to avoid this tragedy, and if you want to see Christ return to this earth in this generation, then I plead with you to reorder your lives if necessary and to make the study of the 1888 message a top priority in your personal study life to see what really God had to say to us back then. And God's final, I'm going to share one final appeal through God's inspired messenger. Light is flashing from the throne of God. And what is this for? it is that a people may be prepared to stand in the day of God. You who have devoted time and energy and money to the adornment of your apparel and to the decoration of your homes, I would say, is Christ formed within you the hope of glory? It's too late in the day to be taken up with the frivolous things of this world. Too late for any superficial work to be done. It is too late in the day to cry out against men for manifesting too much earnestness in the service of God, to say, You are excited, you are too intense, too positive. It is too late. It is too late. And so, my friends, my special friends here in the Loma Linda area, let's be that generation. Let us be that generation. What my grandfather hoped for. I want to see happen I would rather not turn this over to my son while I go to my grave we need to be the final one let us bow our heads in prayer father please help us Lord help us not to let this opportunity slip by us once again you have given us the opportunities you have given us warnings you have given us counsel you've given us a message And, Lord, may this message not penetrate just to our minds and our intellect, but may it change us inwardly in our hearts, in our commitment, in our willingness to go all the way in full surrender so that our sinful lives will not appear to influence or affect anybody. And then, Lord, we pray that we will be that people that are sealable once for all in the history of this world's ugly history. And then, Lord, come soon. Come soon and take us home to be with you. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.